Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Police services all over the world arm their police. Some to normal everyday patrol officers. Some to highly trained men and women like those who serve in the Metropolitan Police's SO19 firearms unit who respond to the most serious of incidents across London, often confronting the most violent and dangerous people in our society. These brave men and women make life-changing decisions with sometimes only seconds and minutes to act to prevent loss of life and serious injury. Former Metropolitan Police Officer Tony Long was one of these brave officers who served in the Met's elite firearms unit and took on this huge responsibility. In his career, Tony Long shot five dangerous offenders, fatally wounding three of them, all of whom were either carrying out serious armed offences or carrying out acts of serious violence with the use of firearms or other dangerous weapons, or was suspected of being in possession of high-powered firearms with the threat of use to kill or seriously injure others. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Tony talks us through his career, these three critical incidents where he had cause to discharge his firearm, and then his battle to clear his name after being charged with the murder of suspected London gangster Azel Rodney. In April 2005, Tony fatally shot Rodney, who was suspected of being in possession of a high-powered firearm during a high-risk vehicle stop, 
only 100 days out from Tony's retirement. Well, this morning I have an incredibly special guest on the podcast, Protect and Serve. Uh, There are a number of people across London who we charge with the responsibility of keeping us safe at the most critical of times in terms of responding to incidents which require a special level of response with the use of firearms and a higher level of uh, force by police in a worst case scenario. One of those individuals is Tony Long, who spent more than 30 years in the police in various different roles, but more predominantly in a firearms role. Tony, welcome to the podcast Protect and Serve. It's a real pleasure to have you on. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Tony, I, like I start my, my shows like every other one. As a good detective, we like to start at the beginning and explore your career through policing. I just wanted, you joined in 1975. I would have assumed that the academy and, and Hendon was very different during that period. Equally, what made you join the police? What was the, what was the defining factor that, that policing was for you? I was a, a crap student at school. Um, uh, I, I didn't dislike school. Um, I was packed off to an all-boys boarding school at the age of seven, and I stayed in a boarding school until 17 when I left. Um, but I wasn't academic at all. I wasn't stupid. I was just probably lazy. I knew I wanted to do something um, exciting. I sort of was brought up on a diet of those old war magazines, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. Actung, Spitfire, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Uh, commando magazine so you know part of me wanted to join the military probably from a very young age um, but then as I got older uh, particularly in the 70s there was um, a raft of really good uh, US uh, police movies so if you think back we had um, uh, the French Connection, Serpico, things like that and um, I didn't really see myself as a Bobby because I just thought the whole image of the British Bobby was archaic and I was brought up in Sussex and and nothing happened down in Sussex that I could see anyway. Um, And so I wanted to be a big city detective. And uh, so this was the 70s. So I'm talking, you know, I I kind of saw myself um, with uh, flared jeans, bubble cut haircut, doing undercover buys. That was chasing bad guys over rooftops. That was kind of what I had my eye on. I did actually apply for the army, the Marines uh, and the police and the Met, who I later found out were absolutely desperate for recruitment, said, yeah, come along. Uh, went for an interview at um, Paddington Green Police Station. A, a very strange experience. It was like something out of Monty Python, really. I mean, it, it, it literally consisted of um, an eyesight test, then a colorblindness test. And I saw the woman write in big letters, CB. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that, that doesn't look good. So I said to her, you know, oh, does that preclude me, you know? And she went, you have, you have to speak to the doctors. So I was obviously a bit worried I wasn't going to pass. <clears throat> and the next phase was to see the doctors. So they gave us these rather tatty old uh, dressing gowns, told us to strip off naked, put the dressing gown on. And then we got this brief that um, when we got our number was called, we were to go through, um, stand on some footprints painted on the floor, drop the dressing gown, bend over and spread her ass cheeks. Um, and, and, and then I remember the sergeant going, are there any questions? And like, I'm, I, no one answered. And I'm thinking, I bet you're all fucking want to ask the same question that I might want to ask. Like, what the fuck? Uh, so anyway, <laughs> what I, is going on? I, my number got called. I dutifully go in. I bend over. I spread my ass cheeks. And uh, <laughs> there, were, there were three or possibly four people in white coats. So to this day, I'm not convinced that they had any form of clinical background whatsoever. But they kind of looked like doctors. And... On the, on the table in front of them, there was a row of different coloured dinky cars, like corgi toy cars. Oh, so I'm, dearie, I'm, 
I'm, I'm bent over with it spreading my ass cheeks. And they said, well, we don't want to see that yet, Mr. Long. But I'm kind of looking over my shoulder going, sorry? They went, Can you come over to the table? So I sort of shuffled over to the table, my hands over my privates. And then they just asked me the, what the colours of the different uh, toy cars were. So I sort of struggled through that, struggled with the greens and the dark browns. Um, but they seemed to be happy and they go, yeah, 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 okay, off you go then. To this day, myself and generations of Met Police officers have no idea what the arsehole inspection was all about. <laughs> to this day, I've gone Met Facebook pages. People are traumatised by it. They're still worried about what it was all about. And then if you got through that stage, you went to an interview and it was just a chief inspector, I think, an inspector and a sergeant. And it was like, you know, why do you want to join the police? Yeah. Um, I said I wanted to do something exciting. They, they said, you do realise it's not all car chases and stuff. And I kind of went to myself, well, I hope it is. And if you pass that, you, you got sent for um, a chest X-ray. And the next thing you know, you got, uh, you got a letter saying, yeah, yeah, join on such and such a date. But I was 18 and a half. So I wasn't allowed to join until I was 19. So I was given a start date the following year. And then about six weeks later, um, I was, my parents ran a holiday camp down in Sussex. So I was helping them sort of get ready for the summer season. And yeah. I got a, another letter saying, um, due to a policy change, um, we're now accepting year 18 and a half, and your start date is uh, the 11th of August, 1975. And when I got to training school, I realised that what it was is recruitment was such a problem um, that for those of you that don't know, you know what Hendon was, Hendon was the Met Police Training College Academy, call it what you like. Mm. But there was basically it was sports fields, probably about four football pitches and a running track and, and all the rest of it. And at one end, you had two tower blocks. Was it three? Three tower blocks, uh, a huge uh, classroom complex. And at the other end of the sports field, you had the cadet school, which was almost as big. And in those days, um, we took police cadets in as boarders at the age of sort of 16. Um, and they they were like what the military would have probably called sort of junior junior soldiers almost you know they were being bred to be fully fledged adult police officers and because because of the recruitment crisis some genius at the yard went well what if we drop the age to 18 and a half we can take 200 cadets in straight away so that's exactly what they did and i happened to be the very first non-cadet to uh, to join at 18 and a half and i was that naive i didn't know what a cadet was my aunt lived at Collindale, which is uh, the nearest station to uh, to Hendon. And, and the, if you get yeah. on the train at Collindale, it goes past Hendon. So I used to, one of my reasons for wanting to join is I'd seen, you know, guys going over the assault course and all that sort of stuff. I had no idea they were cadets. So I thought a cadet was a police recruit. So when I joined, I thought I was a police cadet. And it took about two days of confusion before someone said, no, the cadets are a lot of the other end. You're a recruit. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that period like? So going through the academy in, in, in that period of time, see, I, I, I've heard stories that you'd have to go into a boxing ring with another officer to oh, yeah. learn what it was like to be hit. What was yeah, that yeah. Had you ever been in a physical fight before? What was that experience? Yeah, like? I was. A, well, I had been, but, uh, but only at a much younger age. I was, I was a scrappy little gingerhead kid that people used to take piss out of. And uh, like most gingerhead <laughs> kids, I had a bit of a temper. It was basically what the military called milling. And it wasn't a, yeah. it wasn't a boxing gym. It was they made a square out of gym benches. All of the class sat on the gym benches. I think the women were excused it, and then you got shoved in the ring with someone of an equal size. Unfortunately, I got put in a in the ring with a guy called Joe Snowball, who was an annoyingly good-looking Geordie bloke that all the women loved. <laughs> uh, 
and he was he was an ex cadet, and not only that, he was the ex cadet boxing champion for his weight. Oh. So I went I went in I went in like a windmill. Uh, lasted about two <laughs> seconds before I ended up on my arse. I got back up again, and, and I, he did the same to me. Um, and unfortunately, Joe's no longer with us. He eventually transferred up to Northumberland. At last I heard, he passed away. But uh, Hendon was archaic. I mean, you know, even in the 1970s. Is it a period of your policing life that you reflect on with positivity or more confusion as to the era that you were going through? Well, it, it, no, no confusion because it was the era. It's like everybody's sort of, you yeah. know, giving current police officers a hard time, you know, as we know. Uh, and as you probably know, there's an expression that, you know, TJF, the job's fucked. Well, you know, it's, everyone seems to think that's a new thing, but I'm pretty certain in the Metropolitan Police it, it happened on day two in 1839. Someone said this job's fucked and it's, it's been the same ever since. And um, it seemed very, very stuck in a time warp. So 1983, you passed your National Firearms Instructors course and you transferred into D11 as an instructor and as an operational team member. So you obviously made the conscious decision that you, because obviously you initially joined the Met with the with the dream of becoming a detective, getting out of uniform, you know, chasing those big crooks. So you, you, you obviously, your career shifted in a totally different direction. What was the catalyst for that? It shifted because when I went to Lewisham, um, I realised that all the sexy street plain clothes work wasn't done by detectives. All the sexy street work, um, you know, dressing up scruffy and uh, carrying, observations and all that sort of stuff was conducted by uniform officers working in plain clothes attached to crime squads and you might have out of 12 people on the crime squad you'd have a detective sergeant a detective constable sort of running it and all the rest were were pcs um so the vast majority of detectives unless you you know you'd served your time as a probationary detective um and you were you were good enough to get on something like the flying squad or the regional crime squad or the central drug squad was pretty menial in all honesty. You 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 had to wear a suit. Um, you sat in an office, uh, a typewriter, doing two finger typing, smoking a cigarette. There was a lot of there's a real drinking culture in the in the the uh, CID, which didn't worry me. Uh, but I wasn't really a serious drinker. I actually discovered I quite enjoyed being a uniform copper. Yeah. Um, but just going back very briefly to my shots course, um, I think a basic firearms course um, now, an initial basic firearms course for, uh, and this is the minimum this length you do, is something in the region of eight weeks. Well, mine was five days. Wow. On an indoor five range. Days. Four, four days shooting a gun on an indoor range, qualify on the weapon on the fourth day, and then one day of tactics at Lippitz Hill and Epping Forest. Um, wow. In fact, it was half a day by the time you took in lunch and travelling and all the rest of it, um, where they basically taught you enough to be dangerous. And then you went back to um, your unit and they sent a teleprint message out saying, yes, he's passed his course. There wasn't even an identification card that you had to produce to, to draw a revolver. You just said, yeah, I'm a shot. And they gave you a gun. And you, so, signed, up, you signed, on, signed in the book. So had you ever held a firearm before joining the Met? Oh yeah, I was I was a proper gun pest, and I was growing up in Sussex, yeah. and I'd always had air pistols and air rifles, and then when I was old enough, I got shotguns and and, and then pistols, and I got into pistol shooting when before I joined the police. Um, when I turned eighteen, I was I got my firearm certificate, uh, but prior to that, I used to shoot at the shooting club, and I, I got to quite a high standard of of competition shooting with a pistol. So the course, the five the four day five day course was like a piece of piss for me really it wasn't you know it, it wasn't testing um and and as was the six-week instructors course 
it was basically 50% shooting on all the various weapons that the force used, everything from like a revolver through pistol to shotgun and the like. Um, and uh, 50% standing in front of a class and talking about firearms and firearms-related subjects, which I knew a fair bit about. So, yeah. So if we fast-forward the clock not too far, but if we go to um, Boxing Day 1985, um, was the first incident that you were involved in where the use of firearms was a necessity to save the life of a four-year-old girl. Um, uh, could you want to talk us through that day, that incident, and the, the, you know, the, the emotion that you went through? Because we, our primary job was instructors, we would do uh, a, a month cycle, four teams. At any one time, one team would be the standby team, and the rest of the department would be running training for the 4,800 shots that we were required yeah. to train. Um, and obviously over a Christmas period at all as well, um, you know, there was no training going on. So we were all on Christmas leave with the exception of the standby team. And there was no second standby team because that would have required the job to pay them double time. So there was only one standby team consisting probably of about eight guys, I would have thought. Um, so I was sitting at home with my wife and kids in my police married quarters in South London. Um, I watched the incident unfold on the news um, and it seemed to be fairly well in control. Uh, watching the news footage, when the negotiators, and you could tell the negotiators because they were in suits, would go forward to talk to Errol Walker through the window, there would be a tactical team on either side of them out of, out of shot. They'd have all their method of entry equipment with them. Uh, they'd have their guns drawn, and they would be ready to initiate uh, a rescue if, it, if, if something went wrong. Uh, and it all seemed to be working pretty well probably need a bit of background basically Errol Walker had recently been released from prison having served a very short sentence because he turned Queen's evidence against an armed robbery gang that he worked with yeah he'd served all of his time in protective custody with conjugal rights and a little gym and there's a color tv and all the rest of it he'd come out and he'd immediately started um abusing his wife they had a child together Eventually, that abuse got so bad that she went to live with her half-sister. And on Boxing Day, Errol Walker turned up demanding to see his child or to take his child. His wife ran next door to use the neighbor's telephone. And a struggle ensued between Errol Walker and his wife's half-sister. Mm -hmm. He stabbed her to death. He stabbed her 14 times with a, with a kitchen knife, threw her body out the window. And then he held his own child and the dead woman's child hostage. Police arrived. Um, the initial response would have been completely unarmed. Uh, some riot shields were brought along. Um, eventually, two divisional shots turned up with revolvers, but didn't feel that they were capable enough to take a shot. And pretty well were uncomfortable with the thought of having to, to use their guns. The 11 got called, um, and, and that's what I was watching on the television, on the news. And then I got a phone call at home. Uh, obviously, I wasn't carrying a pager because I wasn't on the standby team. And they said, well, you know, you've probably seen this television on the TV. Um, it looks like it might go long. Um, are you available for a call out? As the siege entered its second day, police were confident it would end peacefully. Walker was still talking as police showed they weren't armed. But he refused a woman friend's plea to give himself up. You're surrounded, she said. So this was Christmas Day. So I turned to my wife and I said, they, they want me to go in uh, tomorrow morning, first thing. And she's, <laughs> it was my son's third birthday so she was obviously less than impressed with that 
I said, oh, it'll probably get, it'll, it'll be over and done with by then. Of course, you know, six o'clock in the morning, I'm on, in a car on my way to work with my mate. And we both watched it and we said, we need a batten gun up there. We need a less lethal option. So this is two constables talking about less lethal options. 20 odd years before less lethal options were finally authorised for use. Because the batten gun that we were talking about was only authorised for public order use. Yeah. So when we got into the base, we said to the inspector, right, we well, ought to take a batten gun boss for a less lethal option. He goes, it's only authorised for public order. So we smuggled it in with our kit and some ammunition, but it was never going to get it was never going to get used. We arrived at the incident. It was a really cold, windswept, miserable day. There was a big crowd, um, even at that time of the morning. By this time, he'd released his own child because she had sickle cell and the immunity wasn't very well at all. Um, so now he's holding a holding a child that isn't a blood relation. He has no bond with. We also, when we arrived, we changed over with the. The, the first team, the negotiators changed over as well. And the first team on day one had had a good relationship with the negotiators, but on our day, they didn't want to talk to us at all. And basically they were talking straight to the on-scene commander and convincing him that they had a peaceful resolution. There was no need for us to even be there, um, that we were upsetting the suspect, that you know he was concerned he was going to get shot. And if we went away, he'd come out. And at one point, they actually came up with a plan that he could come out on the balcony and watch us with all our kit bags, get in the van, drive off, and then he'd surrender. You know, it was, it, But what we didn't know, because they were keeping it from us, was that they knew that at one point uh, the previous day, he'd hung the child out the window by her ankle, bearing in mind it's three stories up. Oh, dearie me. Prior to that, he'd put a plastic bag over her head and beaten her unconscious with a police radio that had been given to him so that he could listen to police communications. He'd, he'd cut her arm down to the bone with his kitchen knife and the blood was dripping down on the fire brigade guys that were standing below, three stories below, ready to catch her in a blanket if she was dropped. And police were taking no chances. Armed men moved to position and firemen had a safety net at the ready after further threats from Walker against his four-year-old hostage. And he'd also threatened to electrocute her. And he bared some cables and held the bared cables up to the up to the in front of the hostage negotiators. The hostage negotiators spoke to a technical guy that was at the scene. He said, oh, "Don't worry about that. If he does that, it will just fuse it. You know, it'll get the fuse will blow. That'll be it. You know, that that, that was his response oh, no. to it. And that was the level of technical advice that they were taking. And so we were instead of being allowed to come forward as as, as a an assault team, we were just basically put literally in the wings in the sidelines. So we had three guys down one end of the balcony hiding in a flat that had been vacated and looking through the letterbox down down the corridor. And there were three more of us at the other end of the corridor by the stairwell, exposed to the elements, um, just basically watching this farce get more farcical by the minute. And because we were no longer allowed out and they'd been told that Errol Walker couldn't see us, he'd been emboldened by this. And he was coming out on the balcony more and more regularly and, and, and basically acting like the Messiah and performing to this huge crowd down below. The stress of the siege showed when Walker brandished his knife at police, who were still hoping their waiting game would pay off. We came up with a with a, with a a plan that we put to the, to the bosses and we said, look, he keeps coming out on the balcony. If we can lure him down by keeping him in conversation from the stairwell end, the guys that are in the flat can get between him and the door and then he won't have a hostage. Job done. And they turned it down because they didn't want to confront him. About an hour after we put this plan down, together and it had been refused, Errol Walker came out onto the balcony with a knife in his hand at a crouch. He looked left, he looked right, and then he sprinted towards the stairwell. Well, the guys in the flat could see him sprinting down the stairwell and knew he was running towards our position. 
but knew that we were completely oblivious of what he was doing. Um, someone was talking on the radio net, so they couldn't get in to warn us. So they broke cover, they opened the door and they ran out. What they didn't realise is that Errol Walker wasn't break, making a breakout. He was reaching for a, an abandoned riot shield at the other end of the corridor. Yeah. And so by the time they came out, you know, they were coming this way, trying to get between him and the door. He was he threw the shield at them and managed to get in the door just before they did. The door slammed in their face. And then on the other side of the door, we can hear him shouting, you've done it now, you've done it now, she dies, she dies, she dies. Walker, crouching in his doorway, made a dash along the balcony for a police riot shield. As he raced back, police came out of their hiding places to pounce and missed him. Then seeming hesitation about what to do next. Um, of course, the senior bosses couldn't hear this. So they were shouting in our earpieces, go back, go back, go back. The, just, the sergeant on the balcony made the very brave decision to just ignore the senior officer's commands because he could hear what was going on inside. Now, when they, when they got to the door, me and my colleagues were completely oblivious of this, and we just all of a sudden we hear a load shouting on the balcony. So me and my mate come out, and we see them around the door, and we see that the mate of mine, Clive, with a stun grenade in his hand. Um, he had a stun grenade at his end of the balcony, and I had a stun grenade at mine. So I've got, got my revolver out, I've got my thumb through the stun grenade, the ring of the stun grenade, and I'm looking at him, and I'm going, I'm thinking, I haven't a clue what's going on here, mate. If you're going to chuck that grenade, chuck it, and then I'll chuck mine. But I'm not, and he's looking at me as if to say, well, throw your grenade. Uh, <laughs> eventually, he threw his, and I threw mine. I mean, it was probably literally seconds, but it seemed everything, as you probably know, in a, in a situation like that, everything sort of slows down. So our stun grenades um, detonated, um, one in the bathroom window, one in the kitchen window. And this was very early days, and um, the stun grenades that we used weren't purpose-built as stun grenades. They were actually military grenade simulators. You know, I mean, there's nothing sophisticated about a, a proper stun grenade. A stun grenade is just a firework, basically, designed to be used in a tactical scenario. And, and this was no different, but it, it had a lot of overpressure and it blew the glass out over our, over our heads. So I just remember the glass showering over my head. We had no hearing protection. Uh, we had no head protection. We were wearing berets because that was our operational uniform at the time. Although we had helmets, we weren't allowed to wear, wear them because they looked too provocative. We had grey coveralls, but we weren't allowed to wear those because they didn't look enough like a police uniform. We had MP5s, you know, carbines. We weren't allowed to use those because they looked too military. So we just literally had our pistols. I didn't have a light attached to the weapon, so I had a, I had a big three cell mag light mag light yeah it's it stuck in my in, in my because because we've been stuck out on the balcony and we've been taken from the assault role and put into a containment role i'd put on leggings and a gore-tex jacket so <laughs> my torch was now buried under like three layers of gore-tex <laughs> so i just i remember clambering in and the the stun grenades had, had, had blown the um most of the glass out but they'd also blown the the lights out in the kitchen yeah. and he'd slung like the fridge across the floor the the uh, washing machine across the floor. He just basically met, turned it into an assault course. And it, the room was full of smoke. And I genuinely thought, any second now I'm going to get stabbed. Because I had no idea what it was. I was just fumbling through the smog, basically. Anyway, I, I got to the door into the living room, uh, which was a glass door. That had all gone as well. That, that had blown as well. Um, and I got into the living room. And I remember sort of trying to get my eyes accustomed to the, the light, because it was quite murky in there and then I saw him in the corner of the settee um, with a little girl um, 
across his chest. So literally all I could see was his arm with a knife, his head, her face, everything else. So I could just about make out the outline of his body, but I couldn't tell where his, her body finished and his started. I fired a pair of shots instinctively. I tried to get a sight picture, but it was too dark to get a sight picture. And my, eye, and my concentration was focused on the threat. So it's very difficult in a real life shooting situation to do what you're trained on a range, which is to take your focus off of the target and onto your front sight. It's virtually yeah. impossible certainly in, in a situation where the light conditions are poor. So I, I double tapped, I fired a pair of shots, which is what we were trained to do at close range, at his shoulder, which was the furthest part away from the body that I, I could, where it wasn't going to hit her. And as I did that, the muzzle flash from my gun silhouetted my sights. So I found my sights um, and he flinched. He sort of turned, turned away when I hit him um, and he exposed the right side of his head. Uh, and I, I fired a single aim shot. At his, at his head. In point of fact, it actually hit the tip of his shoulder before going into his head because he brought his shoulder up and that obscured the, the lower part of his head. So wow. it, it hit the uh, tip of his uh, shoulder, ricocheted into his skull, penetrated his skull and into his brain, I later found out. Um, and his eyes immediately rolled up into his head and he just went limp. And I thought, right, that's it. You, you've done it. You've killed someone. Three shots rang out in the confusion. After 29 hours, the siege was over. That was my first thought. And bizarrely, the other thought that went through my head was because the unit had been given its operational role in, the, in 1975, we're now a decade on. No one has been involved in a shooting. Because that there was such so much cynicism about our operational role, people genuine there was a rumour um, or a belief uh, within the unit that if you fired a shot, you'd be immediately RTU'd, you'd be immediately returned to unit. Yeah. Uh, because they were very, very proud of their 100% who've never fired a shot reputation. They were convinced that that was because their tactics were good. It's just because they, they didn't do a lot of jobs, to be honest. Nice. Um, and the more jobs we did, the more likely it was that somebody was going to pull the trigger. And of course, it was me. So my overwhelming thought was make yourself busy. So I stuck my revolver into the, into my coat. I know I didn't, I kept it in my hand, that was right. And I got hold of the little girl um, and I was very conscious that, um, you know, in training, if you remember, if you've got a foreign object in a body, you're not supposed to try and move it or take it out. No. You're, no, spo no, no, no. you're supposed to make a donut, aren't you, out of it? Yeah. <laughs> and wrap it around it. And, <laughs> yeah. you know. yeah. and I was very conscious of that. So I just took hold of the knife handle to sort of stabilise it so it didn't move around inside her. But as I did that, she just slumped and this knife blade, which was a good uh, eight inches, it just slid out of her. So I threw it on the floor. Okay. I got a shell dressing out of my pocket, slapped it on her. And with my revolver still in my hand, I scooped her up uh, and ran to the front door. It all happened so quickly that some of my colleagues were still, who also had to come through the windows, were pulling the barricades away from the door. And he'd taken an internal door off its hinge and put that up against the door. He put mattresses up against the door. So we would have never got in through that door, um, certainly not quickly enough to save her. So that was very frustrating. I'm there with the girl and my buddies are like passing the, this, all the barricades back and getting them out of the way. And then I remember coming out onto the balcony and I just remember just being back in the wind and the rain. And I remember being very conscious of how slippery it was uh, yeah. because it had been raining on the balcony all day. The dead woman's blood had now was also sort of mixed in with it. Um, and uh, as I'm carrying her down the balcony, I'm suddenly aware that there's a... There's, 
another knife sticking out of her. And I'm thinking, shit, do I stop and deal with that knife? Um, or do I just go? And I just went, right, go. Carlene was carried out suffering from two stab wounds. She's now recovering in hospital. So I ran past the negotiators who was looking there and I tried to give them my dirtiest look possible. Um, because what I didn't mention was that about 20 minutes before all this happened, before the assault happened, what turned out to be um, a psychiatrist who was an advisor to the negotiation team had come out and he'd listened to me and my mate talking and said, your perception is that this little girl's in danger, are you? Because he'd been bringing her out and hanging her over the balcony. And I said, absolutely. He goes, well, I can tell you there's a very strong love bond between this man and this girl. You know, they've been through a lot together and he'll never hurt her. Oh, can be and here I was carrying her past him on the balcony um, with another knife sticking out of her. Anyway, I, I, I didn't run, but I went down the stairs. And I just remember the stairs was loaded. It was loaded with coppers, just ordinary uniform coppers. That obviously, when the explosion had gone off, they'd all sort of run up to see if they could help sort of thing. Got to the bottom of the stairs, the ambulance crew were there because there was no paramedics then. They were just literally, you know, chauffeurs, patient chauffeurs. Handed, handed the little girl over to the patient, uh, to the uh, ambulance guy. I said, there's another knife in her. And then um, I started to, to move through the crowd to, to, with the uniform coppers to try and clear the crowd so that the ambulance could get out. And the crowd was really angry. And I suddenly realised I still had the revolver in my hand. And so I sort of smuggled that into my jacket. Um, and then um, sort of post-incident, we had no post-incident procedure because we'd never been involved in an incident and um, nobody really knew what to do. But about, I'm guessing it was about a month or so previously, we'd been invited by the US Marines at the uh, American Embassy to go to Bisley and do some shooting with them. The FBI yeah. had come over to... to teach the marines modern pistol technique and we'd been invited it, it, it was it was more of a come along for the day sort of thing so we've been went there with our boss in uniform with our berries on and all the rest of it full american treatment you know full big breakfast and orange yeah, juice and coffee yeah and then we had some <laughs> lectures from the fbi and one of them was on post-incident procedure and i remember looking at my mate rick who i you know shared the lift in with that day and his his eyes were like you know, he was raising his eyebrows and going, oh, take some notes here. So we both started taking notes. And one of the things that they suggested was that if one of their agents got involved in a shooting and they're standing there over the person that they've shot, yeah. as soon as another agent is in a position to replace them, get them out of that environment, the better. Mm. And their feeling was, and bear in mind, this was 1985, and I'm sure you know, psychologists have changed their opinion two or three times since then, but their their advice was uh, that the, the better recall you had of this person bleeding out on the floor, the more likely it was that you would suffer from PTSD um, or whatever they called it at the time. I'm not even sure that that, that title existed then. Um, and so as I'm going back up the stairs, like, the copper in me wants to go back to the flat. And the other part of me is going, yeah, remember that lecture, mate? Go back to the control room, which was a flat that we'd taken over on the same floor. And uh, common sense won out, and I went back to the flat. And uh, I remember a couple of the guys, there was a guy that had arrived late and had been running the control, an older guy. Yeah. And he was like, oh, what the fuck happened? You know, and I sort of said, well, I had to shoot him. And he, he, it, was, it was bizarre because it was almost like he didn't know, he didn't know what to say from that point. And this guy was an ex-Welsh guardsman, you know, he served in Northern Ireland and all the rest of it. But the moment I said, well, I had to shoot him, he was just like, oh, you know, 
<laughs> when, yeah, when he got yeah. back on the radio. <laughs> so I thought, I thought I'll make. He said, he said, oh, do you want to do you want to brew? And I went, no, that's all right, mate. I'll do it. I'll do something to keep myself busy. So I started making. We had we had the tea. We had a big ammunition tin, big old massive ammunition tin that we used to carry all the tea making in because obviously we're British and you've got to have a tea making kit. So I started making uh, you know, polystyrene cups with tea and coffee in it and I started making bacon sandwiches. And uh, the team all came in uh, and I remember one guy coming up to me. Um, I'll call him Tony because he was another Tony and had put his arms around me and I was I'm so sorry, mate. I'm so sorry. It was quite emotional because, you know, it was the first incident we'd ever been involved in. Nobody knew where we, you know, we were in completely uncharted territory. So I said to Tony, I said, don't worry about it, mate. Anyway, he's, he's dead. You know, he's not, he's, he's, but he's not. And I went, what? He said, no, no, no. He said, the moment you left the room, he said, I've got my gun pointed at him. He said, and suddenly his eyes opened and he, and he asked us to finish him off. Jesus Christ. So basically, the, the, the round, had, as I said, penetrated his skull and gone into his brain. It had knocked him out temporarily, but then he started to come round, and he effectively had the he had bleed on the brain. He had the effect of a stroke. And yeah. so Errol Walker, to the best of my knowledge, if he's still alive, um, lost the use of the left side of his body because I'd shot him the right side of the brain, so he'd lost, lost the left side of his body. Um, and a year later, um, I, he's sitting in a wheelchair while I gave evidence against him at the Old Bowling. When was the moment for you that it kind of, was there ever a point where you stopped and sunk in the gravity of what you'd been involved in? Do you know what? No. And the reason I say that, I want to sound big headed, but I've always been a bit of a, a bit of a free thinker. And I've always been someone who's strived to make the training that we did as realistic as possible. To me, it'd been inevitable because of the, the way that our operational role had been increasing, that someone would get involved in the shooting. And when yeah. I actually got involved in the shooting, it was someone said to me, oh, what's it like to shoot someone? And I said, like training. If you make your training realistic enough, if instead of having four people on the firing point, you know, with an instructor behind going, this is a 10-round shoot, two shots to be fired on each, two-second exposure <laughs> to the turning target, watch your front. If instead you say you've got to make oh. your way down this obstacle course, climb through that window, shoot a steel plate without hitting the two hostage targets, and then we'll stop the clock. And that was exactly the sort of shooting that I was doing with my team members because I wasn't training 4,800 shots. I was only training the eight guys on my team. Everything that we did involved physical movement, uh, decision-making. You know, we had some targets that were clearly innocent, some targets that were clearly hostile. We turned the lights down. You know, uh, we do all of this stuff to try and make the training as realistic as possible. And in all honesty, the only thing different between Errol Walker shooting and the stuff that I'd been doing on the range is that when I shot him, I didn't put my hand in the air and go, time, for the guy to stop the stopwatch. That was the only real difference. And I, Errol Walker was a target. You know, that sounds awful. I know that, you know, he was a, a real person, you know, with, you know, clearly with lots of flaws. There was no anger in me shooting him. You know, although he, he, as I came in, I don't think I mentioned this, but as I'm shouting at him before I fired, he shouted, He's shouting, um, she dies, she dies, she dies, uh, as, he, as he's stabbing her, you know. Uh, and I, to this day, I don't know whether I shot him immediately prior to him stabbing her or at the time he stabbed her or after he'd stabbed her because it all happened so quickly. But, yeah, there was no anger in, in me shooting him, even though, you know, he was using this little girl as a shield and she was only a year older than my son and it was his birthday I was missing. There was none of that. It was literally, he was a cardboard target. And if you don't go into situations with that mindset, then you're probably in the wrong job. So after that incident and 
and you know we've talked about at length that policing procedures and not so so much the fallout but the ramifications of a such a significant incident were very different to what is by today's standards a very complex investigation in terms of the coroner's involvement whether it's lawful is it unlawful all those things that police officers go through how quickly was it from that incident that you were back in uniform and back on the front line in an armed policing role okay so so bear in mind there would have been no coroner's inquest because he survived. Uh, in answer to your question, there was zero. It was almost like that didn't happen. That's like la la la. Stick things in your ears. Close your eyes. La 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 la. I literally. Um, so obviously it was over the Christmas period. So I can't remember exactly when I returned to work. I can't remember what day, for instance. You know, Boxing Day fell on her in, in 1985. So it might have been a couple of days. It might have been a week, or it might have been the next day. I don't know. But I literally went back to work. My revolver had been seized. And, uh, you know, the three live rounds that were left and the three spent cases had been seized and put in an evidence bag. I literally went over to the store, to the armourer, and said, uh, I need a new revolver. And he issued me with a new revolver. Um, And a week later, I was on standby duty. And I was never interviewed in complaints branch because Errol Walker wanted to die. Mm. And because he wanted to die, he thought I'd acted correctly. He even had his barrister congratulate me on my shooting at the Old Bailey a year later. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't make a complaint. And in the Metropolitan Police, certainly in 1985, if you didn't, if a person didn't make a complaint, there was nothing to investigate. So there was no investigation. And when I got to court, my statement had been typed out, uh, the handwritten notes that I'd made uh, back at Southall Police Station on the night, on the back of a scrap of paper, because we couldn't even, because it was Christmas time and the place was closed down, we couldn't even get hold of any proper notebooks. So we. I'd written it on a scrap of paper that on the other side had some memo about <laughs> ammunition returns or something that was in my pocket of my jacket. Um, yeah, the most the most bizarre situation. It's, it's not a word that police officers often like to be described as, um, you know, the word hero. Um, you know, I, I think... I am. One... Oh, definitely, well, I that... am. I'm well... joking. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's incredibly heroic, you know, the bravery, the resilience to overcome such a confronting issue and to go in there and to engage in in such an instant where life and death really is in front of you in terms of what could happen to that young child. Have you maintained a relationship with that young lady since that incident? Is there, has there ever been a point where she's reached out and said, listen, thank you for saving my life? So within days, we had, uh, obviously, her mother was dead. So immediately yeah. her... Immediately, her grandparents um, took took control of the situation and, and took her in. Um, and we had sent her a teddy bear and a get well card. In point of fact, that although she'd suffered this, this, this I didn't tell you the injuries that she sustained. She this eight inch knife had gone down behind her clavicle, down into her chest cavity, just narrowly missing her heart. It was oh, the same God. injury, the same same injury that her mother had sustained that she died from. But they were, the surgeons were actually more concerned about the injury to her arm, where he cut her down to the bone the day before, because that had become badly infected, and they thought that she was going to use, lose the use of her arm. So we got a thank you letter from the grandparents saying, you know, thank you for giving our granddaughter back to us, basically. And there was a picture in the press of her with a baby, but I, I have never seen her from that day forward. And in point of fact... Decades later, when I came up for trial at the Old Bailey for another shooting, uh, long after I'd retired, 10 years after I, uh, after the incident and about eight years after I'd retired, um, a member of the press approached Errol Walker's 
wife or ex-wife saying that he would like to interview um, the girl uh, because he believed that I was clearly some sort of psychopath that, you know, had been involved in multiple shootings and shouldn't be doing the job and everything else. And she basically showed him the front door and told him that in, you know, in her eyes, I'd saved the little girl's life. And she complained to police about the actions of the, of the, um, of the press. Uh, and while the police were talking to her, she said that the child has no, or the woman now, you know, has, mm. but she has absolutely no recollection of it whatsoever. Um, and she wouldn't want her to know about it. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Metropolitan Police Firearms Officer Tony Long. In episode two, Tony talks us through the harrowing moment when in 1987 he shot and killed two men who were carrying out a robbery on a Securicore van delivering wages in South London. Tony shot dead 24-year-olds Michael Flynn and Nicholas Payne, fearing they were about to shoot the security van's driver. A third armed robber was shot, but he survived. So it's a hostage situation, basically. The guy to my right, a guy called Mickey Flynn, believe it or not, he starts to turn and I immediately shot him. Coming next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network.